right, so we are um, we're approaching the end of our walk series, the series we're calling The Walk. Um, I don't know about you guys, but um, I've been loving it. And I'm not sure if it's because of what I'm learning or just the theme, like the wintertime, I just want to go for a really big walk. I love journeys. I love adventures. I love <laughs> Joseph. That's right. We're going to go on one together soon. It's been too long. Um, just getting a chance to get out in nature and wander around. And um, so the whole theme of the walk, this idea that our lives are journeys, uh, is something that just sort of resonates with me. And, um, uh, and I'm enjoying it. I hope you guys um, are too. So we... Um, uh, so we're kind of, we got one more week. Next week is the last week in the series. Wendy's going to be up here talking about decisions and what it looks like when we reach sort of forks in the path uh, and um, what goes into the process of figuring things out in terms of do we go this way or that way and how God gives us insight into that stuff. So next week is the last week. The week after that, so two weeks from today, we're just going to have a big meal, celebrate a big meal in the room together. Um, just as a reminder that the walk is not something we do alone but we're in this together, we're a family, and sometimes we just got to eat. Sometimes the family of guys just got to eat. <laughs> so we're going to eat together and enjoy, uh, enjoy that meal. So I came across this quote um, the other day when I was kind of doing my little um, devotion time. <coughs> it goes like this. Um, like few other metaphors, the image of the Christian life as a journey captures our experience <coughs> of following Christ. Journeys involve movement and action, stops and starts, detours, delays, and trips into the unknown. So the value of this metaphor of the walk, this journey that we're talking about, is really the reason that we decided to spend the first couple of months on this, um, on the different topics that we've gone through. And so far in the series, we've talked about the Holy Spirit as our guide, as a presence with us on the journey. We talked about prayer and the importance of connecting regularly and talking, being in conversation with God along the way. Uh, we've looked at Alberto last week, talked about um, the sort of small everyday things in our life that might seem mundane sometimes, but the importance of those things, how those small things add up to be large, significant th things through the course of our life. And then Wendy will be up here next week talking about decision-making. Um, so if you've missed any of the messages along the way, if you're struggling with rest or with Sabbath or receiving rest from God, any of the topics that we've talked about, then uh, all those messages are on the website, everydaycc.com. You can check those out and go back to them and kind of dive back into some of the concepts that, um, that we've dealt with. So. Okay, so today, um, the topic actually that we're getting in today is a little bit of, um, of a tricky one. It's something that I've spent a lot of time with over the last couple of years and gained a lot of blessing from. Um, but, um, but as I've been thinking about how to share uh, the, the concept or the idea with you guys today, uh, I realize I kind of have this fear that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fall short of um, what we need to talk about. And so uh, be gracious. I've like all of these different things I want to share and trying to pull that into what I think are the really foundational, important things that we need to get a hold of as we start to talk about this idea of looking inward, of our true self, of what how God created us, what he intended for each of us individually. Um, so I'm excited about what we're talking about, but, um, but I'm also um, struggling a little bit, and I'm hoping that, uh, that we can get into some important stuff and that God will speak through um, our time together. So I just want to pray for us um, as we kind of dive into this right now. Lord, I thank you for, um, for this space, for this family, 
for what we do when we gather together, um, together collectively singing and, and sharing with you, telling you how much we love you, what we think of you, the what you are worth to us as we, as we worship you. And also as we spend time just processing what we're hearing from you and what um, we feel like you want us as a church to be wrestling with and learning and the areas you want us to look at and the ways in which you desire to make us more and more like Jesus. And so I pray this morning that as we, uh, we spend time looking at some stories and processing through some ideas that you would be present in all of this and um, that you would speak and that we would hear what you have to say, Lord, that you would speak into our hearts and, uh, and remind us of your deep love for us and uh, in this journey that you're taking us on through the course of our life. So, Lord, we thank you for our time together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So there's, uh, there's a quote from a guy, and an, it's an anonymous Hasidic rabbi, actually, toward the later part of his life. Um, and it goes a little bit like this. Uh, when I was young, I set out to change the world. When I grew a little older, I perceived that this was too ambitious, so I set out to change my state. This, too, I realized as I grew older was too ambitious. So I set out to change my town, and when I realized that I could not even do this, I tried to change my family. Now, as an old man, I know that I should have started by changing myself. If I had started with myself, maybe then I would have succeeded in changing my family, the town, the state, who knows, maybe even the world. The longer I live, the more difficulties I face, the more of the sort of realness of life that I experience, the more this idea and these words resonate with me. And I look back at my life and I wish that at some point in my early, that uh, the younger Larry would have recognized the wisdom in these words, that if I start with myself, I have a hope of making an impact on the world around me. But if I try to start by fixing everyone else around me, there's a really good chance I'm actually going to do harm instead of the blessing that God wants to bring to others through my life. So I've heard this same wisdom explained um, in a similar but a, a little bit different way. This idea that um, in the first half of our lives, that God is chiefly concerned about what's going on inside of us. He's chiefly concerned in the first half of our life of what's happening inside. That's where God is doing his work. Where he wants to do his work is on the inside of us. And as we grow and as we join him in that inside work, then we have the potential to begin to see impact around us, outside of us. But where God is chiefly concerned, what he wants to do through the course of our teens and our 20s and 30s and 40s, I hope, is this inside work, this transformation that he wants to do in helping us on the inside. So there's a phrase uh, that I learned some time ago that has helped me get a hold of this idea, and it's what um, we're going to spend a little bit of time on this, uh, this idea this morning. And it goes like this. Our doing for God must flow out of our being with God. Our doing for God must flow out of our being with God. And I think it might be better to say healthy doing for God flows out of being with God. Because there are lots of people doing all kinds of things for God, oftentimes in unhealthy ways or with unhealthy motives. And I think most days we can look in the mirror and we see that person that's trying to do things, but doing it maybe in unhealthy ways or not even understanding the motivations of our own, um, of our own hearts. Healthy doing is not easy. In fact, I think that what we see um, in Scripture and really the call of God on our lives 
is that um, healthy doing is nearly impossible for us if we're not spending time with God, if we're not being with him and allowing him, joining him in the inner work that he's trying to do in our lives. But this gets us into a bit of a paradox that I think we need to start with this morning, this conflict between who we are and what we do, this doing and being, who we are on the inside being and what we do on the outside are doing. There's, um, there's a fascinating poem uh, called Ask Me. I don't know if you're familiar with this poem, but it's called Ask Me. It's by a guy named William Stafford. Um, it's one of those poems. I don't know if you spend much time or enjoy poems. A lot of people don't. Um, I discover that, um, that there, you, there are a lot of poems that as you spend time with them, you kind of look at them and think like, I have no idea what this guy's trying to say. I don't know what this lady's writing. I don't know what this is supposed to mean. And it gets kind of annoying because you feel like, I think they're trying to say something, but I'm not sure really what it is. And so there are poems that are kind of like that. And then there are poems that you look at and you kind of puzzle, and really what you're dealing with is like this really deep well, this idea of there's like deep wisdom here. I'm just struggling to get at that wisdom. And the more time I spend with it and invest, and the more I allow God to speak through that into my heart, then I start to understand and gain some of this wisdom. And this poem is, um, is one of those sorts of poems, I think. So I'm not going to read the whole thing because I realized as I go down, to every time I go down through it, I kind of get lost somewhere in there, like, oh, wow, that I think I almost had a really great thought right there. But um, so I'm just going to give us the first couple of, um, of lines from this poem because he asks some very interesting questions and gets into, I think, what the heart of this poem is trying to wrestle through. So this is what um, the first couple lines say. Sometime when the river is ice, ask me mistakes I have made. Ask me whether what I have done is my life. Ask me the mistakes I've made. Ask me whether what I have done is my life. Is what you have done in your life your life? Is your life simply about doing? Is it simply about the choices that you make and the actions that you take through the course of your life? Do your choices in life represent the fullness of who you are? If you wanted to get to know Larry, and I just told you everything I've done, would you really know me? Would you know the real me just by knowing the decisions or the things that I've done through the course of my life? I think that um, if we spend very much time with those questions, I think we'd all agree that our actions don't tell everything about us. That in fact, if you based your knowledge of me just on what I've done, particularly the mistakes that I've made in my life, you wouldn't know the real me. You wouldn't have a full picture of who I am down inside, the real me, who I am deep down inside, that who I am inside and what I do in the course of my life are not the same. They don't equal the same thing. So there are a variety of things that um, I would like to get into, too many things to actually get into this morning. Um, as I share with you and we get into some of the different concepts about ourself, about true self and false self, about ego and identity and soul and role, really deeply important things for us to be processing uh, as humans and as followers of Jesus. But there's something that I feel like is, um, is far more important, more foundational to all of this stuff. I hope that we're able to go into some of these things as we as I share this morning and in the coming weeks, but, um, but there's something foundational that I think that we need to kind of lay before we get too deeply into this. So there are two moments in Jesus' life 
that, um, that I want to share with you this morning. It's possible that you've heard these stories or read uh, these things in Scripture before, but there's two particular um, uh, stories that I want to share with you, moments in Jesus' life. And both of them are recorded for us by Luke, who was a physician. He was a believer. He was a follower of Jesus um, during Jesus' life and shortly after uh, he lived around the time of Jesus, and in the book of Luke and the Bible, he recorded a lot of different things, uh, events in Jesus' life, and these are two of them um, that I want to kind of talk through. So when Jesus was about 30 years old, um, what is called his public ministry, what's often referred to as his public ministry began, um, that essentially before, when Jesus, before Jesus turned 30, um, he lived for the most part a life of obscurity, uh, we don't, there's not a lot of information about the thir first 30 years of Jesus' life. There's a lot about the first two years, year or two of his life, of his infancy and his birth and things that happened bringing Jesus into the world and surrounding his early years. And there's a really small story uh, that occurred when he was 12 years old. But other than that, there's not really much in Scripture at all about the first 30 years of Jesus' life. We don't really know very much. In fact, Scripture gives us the idea that, um, that Jesus hadn't done anything particularly amazing or miraculous or uh, impressive in the first 30 years of his life. And that may strike you as like, this is the Son of God. Hold on a second. But the truth is, when we look at Scripture, we don't really see much about Jesus in the first 30 years. In fact, the picture that we get is that he lived a pretty ordinary, everyday life. He didn't have lots of followers. He wasn't well-known. He wasn't particularly well-regarded. His family, there's stories in Scripture that his family didn't even really believe that he was anything special. And so these first 30 years of Jesus' life sort of pass in obscurity. He's just a guy living in an area that wasn't particularly respectful. He, he was most likely a day laborer, a carpenter by trade. Uh, nothing particularly impressive or miraculous about him. So check out um, one of the first stories that we read about Jesus when he's about 30 years old. Um, so listen to what, uh, what Luke writes here. He says, all the people were being baptized and Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. So at the surface of this story, and Luke records this, Matthew and Mark record the same story for us, very similar, a little bit different details given, um, but essentially the same story shared by all three of them. Significant story at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, kind of initiating or starting his public time um, during, his, uh, during his life. And at the surface, this story is, it's a nice little story. It's kind of cool, this moment of God it's, uh, opens the sky up, he speaks in a loud voice, and kind of affirms that Jesus is his son, that this is Jesus, this is my son. And that's what we often think about when we read this, that people heard God's voice, and this was kind of proof, evidence to the world, that Jesus was who he said he was in the, the, the further couple of years of his life. But there's something else that strikes me about this particular story, and particularly the timing of this story. And I think it's very relevant to us as humans and um, as followers of Jesus that Jesus had not yet done anything. He hadn't done anything. He hadn't produced anything. He hadn't accomplished anything. He didn't have followers at this time. Nobody really knew, knew who he was. He was this unknown guy, and yet, before he had done anything, God speaks and proclaims 
his love and his pleasure for Jesus. That in this moment, before Jesus had done or accomplished or succeeded in any way, that Jesus chooses that moment to declare his love. That God was pleased with Jesus, with his son, before he had done anything notable. So now jump um, forward some number of months um, after this particular story. And um, Jesus now has followers. He's been traveling all over um, the villages and towns around Jerusalem and up north um, from Jerusalem. And he's healing people, and he's teaching about the kingdom of God, and all of these things are happening. And Jesus starts to develop this sort of crowd of followers, people that are walking with him and traveling and going to hear um, what he has to say. And at one point, um, he takes 72 of his followers, and he splits them up into pairs, into twos. And he gives them some instructions, and he sends them out ahead of him to go to all of the towns and the villages that um, he's going to be visiting in the coming days and weeks. And so Jesus gives them some instructions. He says, when you get to these towns, look for people of peace to stay with. Stay with them and teach the people in the town about the kingdom of God that is coming. And so he sends them out on their way. So these folks, these 72 followers of Jesus that he sent out, these were people that had been following him for some number of months, some amount of time. They had seen him at this point heal people. They'd seen him teach deep, amazing things. They had, um, they had seen his power over, um, they'd seen his power over dark spiritual forces, the spirits, the demons that scripture talks about. So they had watched him and they'd heard Jesus warn them like, when you're out doing your thing, you're going you're gonna to run into the same challenges that, um, that I've run in. And so he sends them on their way. And so sometime later after this, those 72 followers of Jesus, they've been out at these different towns, they return to Jesus, and they're excited. De- some crazy cool stuff has been happening, and they come back to Jesus, and they're really, really excited about what's happened. This is what Luke writes in chapter 10. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submitted to us in your name. It was amazing, Jesus. Such incredible things happened. Even the dark spiritual forces that you warned us about, they fled from us when we used your name. What great joy. And Jesus' response to this fascinates me the way he responds to them. First of all, he joins them in their, ex- in their excitement. Yes, Satan has fled before you. I've given you power. Look what you're able to do. But then he drops this warning that strikes me as totally out of place in the midst of celebration, in the midst of victory that these 72 are celebrating. And when I think about this story, I feel like I, like I can imagine Jesus is there and he's celebrating and is excited and this crowd of people around him. And Just this change comes over his face and his body, his voice. He just gets really serious all of a sudden. And listen to what Jesus says um, to them. This is all true and exciting. And then he says, however, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you. Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What? What's just been going on? The spirits, the evil spirits have been submitting to thee. There's so much excitement. Lord, look what's happening. This is amazing. And Jesus says, don't take joy in that stuff. 
Don't rejoice in what you do. Don't rejoice in the accomplishments of your hard work. Don't rejoice in your success. Don't rejoice in what you do for me. I'll tell you what to rejoice in, that your names are written in heaven, that you are God's sons and daughters, that you have a relationship with the God of the universe, universe, this thing that does not change. Rejoice in who you are in God the Father. Your joy must come, it has to come, from being with God, not doing for God. Our source of joy is not in our success and our accomplishment and how well we do this or how well we do that. Who you are is far more important than what you do. Yes, what we do for God matters. He cares about that stuff. But who we are as children of God is far, far more important. So God, God's first public declaration in Jesus' adult life, he splits the sky he speaks in a loud voice, and he declares his love and his pleasure for Jesus before Jesus had done anything. And Jesus got it. He understood my value, my worth is not in what I do. It's in who I am, who I am in God, who he has called me to be. He understood that God loved him and accepted him and was pleased with him before he had accomplished anything, before he had done anything impressive. And he's standing here with his friends, and they're, and they're celebrating victory and excitement. And Jesus interjects a truth, and I think it comes from maybe a concern or a fear that Jesus has for us as humans. Please do not think that God's love for you comes from what you produce in your life from what you do, from what you accomplish. Do not fall for that lie. God's love for you is before and even in spite of the things that we do in our life. That what we do in our life is less important to God, far less important to God than who we are. And I wonder, do you think that Jesus knew that we would spend, as humans, as Americans, that we would spend so much energy measuring ourselves and one another by what we accomplish in our lives, by what we produce? That we'd celebrate productivity and success and accomplishment. That we would value people based on what they're worth to us. Value people based on what they produce in our society, in our culture, and in our own lives. So if this is all that you get this morning in our time together, then I pray that you get this. That the moment you entered the story, before you had done anything, before you had accomplished anything, good or bad, God deeply loves you. And he's pleased with who you are. That is where our joy comes from. So the Apostle Paul, um, he wrote this in one of his letters, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. That neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. God's love does not come and go. We're loved by God before even despite what we do in life, that God's love um, for us is because of who we are in him, not, um, not what we do. This is our foundation, our firm foundation. 
as we turn our eyes inward and we start to process who we are and what God wants to do through the course of our lives as we make decisions, as we live into our potential, um, we have to understand this foundation that God loves us because of who we are, not because we got it all figured out, not because we manage our sin well, not because we make all the right choices, not because we think all the right thoughts, not because we hold all the right doctrine or thinking about God or we understand everything correctly. God loves us for who we are. And we have to hold on to that, particularly when we start talking about what it looks like to grow and mature and become more and more of what God intended us to be. That that doesn't accomplish something for us in terms of our love, um, our love for God. So um, I'm about to turn into this other stuff, which is really cool and fun. But I want to make sure that this just sinks down into our hearts because it really is a foundation for this journey that we're taking with God. So I'm just going to give us a minute to be quiet, and then I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll, um, we'll start to get into some practical, fun stuff. Lord, I am. I'm thankful for um, just the little stories, the little moments that um, that are slipped into Scripture, that are slipped into the story of Jesus' life, that um, that reveal maybe things that we don't expect to see, things that are, I think, very contrary to who we are as humans. We find so much of our value and worth in who in what we do in our performance, for how we function in society and in the world around us. And uh, in Jesus, I think in these stories we see how, how much you understood how prone we are to measuring ourselves based on our actions, um, our productivity, our, our, our success, our ideas of success. And, uh, and in that moment with your 72 followers and all the reason to celebrate and be excited, and you didn't, you didn't miss the important thing that was happening there, but you saw in their success a human tendency towards measuring ourselves based on our productivity, based on what we produce, ba based on the outcomes of our life. And so I pray, I'm, I'm thankful, Lord, that you, um, Jesus, that you interjected that truth to remind us that, yeah, this is great stuff. The things that we get to do for you are really amazing, but that's not where our value comes from. That it's not where our love from you comes. We don't earn it. It doesn't change. It's something that we receive from you from the moment that we have even thought of in your mind. And I thank you for that, Jesus. I thank you for pausing in that moment to remind those 72, but also us today, of how important this truth is for us. And so as we, uh, as we kind of shift and start to talk about what it means to understand uh, our true self, our souls, who you've made us to be, who you intended us to be in this world, as we start to talk about that stuff and we start to look at ways in which 
um, that's obstructed, the ways in which we've missed or fallen short of that, I pray that we it wouldn't, this wouldn't be a process of sort of judging ourselves or self-critique, but rather from a place of joy in who we are and, uh, and that we've been accepted by you, that, um, that we would enter into this journey as a gift from you that to understand the beauty that you've put inside of us, that as we work to call that out of our lives, that that's just a gift. It's not something to be ashamed that we've fallen short of. So I pray that, um, that you would really sink that deeply down into our heart and, um, and that you would use the things that we do as a church and as a family to help us value one another for all the right reasons. Not for what we get from one another, but really that we could see the beauty in one another because of the beauty that you've put there, because of your love for the people around us and for one another, uh, that we would love with that same kind of acceptance and love. Uh, we love you, Lord. We thank you for how deeply you love us. And it's in um, Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so um, let's jump into this idea of true self and false self, and I'm gonna, there's different ways of talking about this, different ways of thinking about this. Some of this is stuff that um, some of you have, um, you've spent some time processing, maybe you understand, or you've read some of the different people that I'm going to quote here, um, but um, for some of you, I know this is kind of new territory, so, uh, but this is, this is fun stuff, actually, it's pretty cool. So, um, let me read to you uh, just a quick um, line from Parker Palmer in his book, A Hidden Wholeness. This is what he says. All of us arrive on earth with souls in perfect form. Now that line right there is kind of contentious actually among Christians. There are people that have different ideas about how all this stuff works. But um, what Palmer says here and what I believe, um, that all of us arrive on this earth with souls in perfect form. But from the moment of birth onward, the soul or the true self is assailed by deforming forces from without and within, by racism and sexism, economic injustice and other social cancers, by jealousy and resentment and self-doubt and fear and other demons of the inner life. All of us arrive on earth with our souls in perfect form. That there is this part of us, the truest part of us, the me that is really me, the, God, the part of me that God put there in my beginning, my soul, my true self, your soul, your true self. That it's you and me as we were meant to be, as God created us uniquely to be. We arrive on earth with that part of us perfectly intact and in form. The song in Psalm 139, it's a very popular psalm. David sings a song about this, about the way in which God knits us together in our mother's womb. And he uses this term of our innermost being. And we get this idea as you're reading what, what David's writing there, that there's this part of us that God knew and created that is our, the way he meant for us to be, our truest self. The me that is most truly me. Encased inside of this body of flesh, somewhere down deep inside is this soul, this true self, this idea, and we run into this frequently in, um, in Scripture. And from the moment of our birth, the true me and the true you are under attack. Under attack by external forces, by the experiences that we face through the course of our life, the internal struggles that we deal with as we're wrestling through our inner lives and inner worlds. So the sad, unfortunate truth is that most humans lose touch with this idea of our true self, idea of our soul. We lose touch with that, particularly in our early years. 
We might start off as ourselves, but the difficulties and the struggles in our early years of being um, of life, these things begin to pile layers on top of us and building walls and masking our true selves. And it happens really quite naturally, this sort of process of the way in which we're deformed. Um, so I want to give you a couple of analogies that kind of help me get my mind around a little bit of this context concept. Um, so over the past several of months, um, and just sort of processing and learning, and over particularly this past several weeks, thinking about this message, an image has kept coming into my mind. Um, and you may or may not know this, but John and Christina's oldest son, Elias, a couple of months ago started learning hockey. So I didn't talk to you guys about this, but this is really what's been going on in my mind. So Elias is about six years old, right? And he, um, he started learning. He fell in love with hockey. His mom and dad aren't particularly hockey stars. So uh, he fell in love with hockey for some reason. Maybe you are, John, and I just don't know this about you. So it's not part of John's true self. Hockey is not part of his truest true. Um, so Elias just sort of decided he's really interested in hockey, and so he's been learning hockey over the last couple of months. And I keep getting this image of Elias in a hockey goalie uniform. So I got a picture for you guys. That is not actually Elias, <laughs> as far as I know. But this is my very point. So um, through the course of our lives, we start to add on armor and all of this stuff, padding to kind of protect us. So for this kid, he's out on the ice. There's hockey pucks flying. I don't know if you've ever watched hockey. It's insane. Hockey pucks flying, sticks swinging everywhere, people racing, human bodies like projectiles racing around on the ice going insane speeds. So this kid has got to wear all of this protection to keep himself safe so he doesn't lose eyes or teeth. I think hockey guys are notoriously short on teeth. Like, to protect themselves from injury, this kid is wearing all of this armor, this protection. And I think it's sort of like that for us in our life, is an image that just helps me get my mind around this. That each of us enter the world, we step out onto the ice, physically, emotionally, mentally vulnerable, completely, utterly vulnerable. No protection whatsoever. That is the way that we come in to this world. And our true self is all out there in the open for anybody to take a shot at. So life starts to happen, and so we start to add padding and armor, and we start to take these things on, and masks, and all of this stuff we start to add on to ourselves to keep ourselves safe. And sometimes we do that consciously, but so often we do this stuff without a clue that it's even happening to us. For various reasons, we put on all sorts of different armor to survive, to stay safe, to navigate the challenges and the pains that we experience in the fourth of our lives. But we don't naturally or easily take that armor back off. It kind of sticks with us oftentimes through our entire lives. So if you imagine that kid growing up and walking through life, wearing all of that same armor, physical contact, eye contact, meaningful human interaction, all of that stuff is disrupted because we're walking around with all of this armor and all of these things to protect ourselves, but they're keeping this gap between who we are in the world and who we are as our truest self. So the other image um, that, uh, that comes to my mind, Lily and I, uh, my middle daughter, Lily, she loves to climb. 
And so Lily and I go climbing now and then. Sometimes we climb in gyms. Sometimes we have a chance to get out in nature and climb on real rocks and beautiful places. Uh, and the same thing happens every single time that we go climbing together. Some number of hours after we climb, I will look down at my hands and be like, whoa, what's going on? And there's all of these like red patches like all over my hands. And we don't climb that often, but even after just a couple of hours of climbing, my hands got all these calluses that are starting to develop. And they're doing that. This is a to like my explanation of calluses is totally lame and not medical, I'm sure. So <laughs> you can scratch this all as a silly illustration. But this, th what I realize is like my skin somehow senses danger. And so it starts to build up these calluses, these thick areas in all the right places and all the important spots because of the roughness and the jaggedness of the rocks that we're climbing all over. And it's doing it somehow as a kindness to me to help protect me. But if you've ever interacted with somebody who, like, works, like, they're hardcore, they work with their hands, and, like, they touch your face or something. My dad's hands were like this. You touch your face, and you're just like, like, that isn't even human. Like, there's <laughs> thick stuff on there, you know? Like, I don't know what's going on. And it just affects your ability to feel, to sense things. You know, there's just this effect that happens when that calluses build up too big, and they start to interfere with other things that happen. But it's there and intended to kind of protect us. But that is really the way that it works for us in the course of our lives. We put on this armor and we start to develop this thick stuff all over us and we put on masks. We create these sort of shells that exist outside of ourselves. We build walls up, all of that stuff to protect ourselves. But what begins to happen is this gap between the false self that we're living out in the world and the true self that's buried down in there the self that God created us to be. And we begin to lose touch with that as this gap develops. And the day that we start to realize it, if we even realize it, the journey back to that true self is incredibly difficult because the armor is strong and the walls are thick. These masks that we put on, they want to stay. All of these constructs that we've created around us that we are living out of, don't easily go away to allow us to find this part of ourselves as God created it. So the light that God created in you, the gift that God gave to the world through you, gets lost and hidden in the process of our lives. And this gap develops between the false self that we live out, these fictions, these masks, these illusions that we create, and the true self that's meant to be down inside of us. And sensing the difference between the two when we're interacting with our friends and the people we love and we're functioning in the world, sensing the difference of whether we're living out of our false self or our true self is not something that's very easy. So I, um, I want to read a passage um, for you that illustrates some of this idea um, in a beautiful sort of way. Um, it's from the book Let Your Life Speak by Parker Palmer. Um, I first ran into him talking about this some number of years ago, and it stuck with me, and, um, and this section of the book really captures this well. So I just want you to listen. You can close your eyes if you like, but just listen um, to this story about um, him talking about his granddaughter particularly. <coughs> so if you doubt that we all arrive in this world with gifts and as a gift, pay attention to an infant or a very young child. 
A few years ago, my daughter and her newborn baby came to live with me for a while. Watching my granddaughter from her earliest days on earth, I was able in my early 50s, his grandfather, to see something that had eluded me as a 20-something parent. My granddaughter arrived in the world as this kind of person, rather than that or that or that. She did not show up as raw material to be shaped into whatever image the world might want her to take. She arrived with her own gifted form, with the shape of her own sacred soul. Biblical faith calls it the image of God in which we're all created. Thomas Merton calls it true self. Quakers call it the inner light or that of God in every person. The humanist tradition calls it identity and integrity. No matter what you call it, it's a pearl of great price. In those early days of my granddaughter's life, I began observing the inclinations and proclivities that were planted in her at her birth. I noticed, and I still notice, what she likes and dislikes, what she's drawn toward and repelled by, how she moves, what she does, what she says. I'm gathering my observations in a letter. When my granddaughter reaches her late teens and early 20s, I make sure that that letter finds its way to her with a preface something like this. I wish we all had a letter like a grandfather like this um, that could give us this letter. But this is the preface that he, um, that he includes or intends to include with this letter. Here's a sketch of who you were from your earliest days in this world. It's not a definitive picture, only you can draw that, but it was sketched by a person who loves you very much. Perhaps these notes will help you do sooner something your grandfather did only later. Remember who you were when you first arrived and reclaim the gift of true self. <coughs> so this is the point where I wish I could say, all right, seven steps to um, finding your true self. Here's a letter from the best grandfather you could imagine. Um, I wish it were that, um, that easy. Uh, but like all of life, the journey back to ourselves um, is long and difficult and probably not at all what, um, what you expect it to be. And that's been the case for me and for anyone that I've um, had the chance to talk with about this journey in their own life. So Mary Sarton's a, a poet. She, um, she wrote this in her poem, Now I Become Myself. I just like the name of this poem. Now I, that's all we could just say, Now I Become Myself. But these are the first um, few lines of her poem. Now I become myself. It's taken time, many years and places. I've been dissolved and shaken, worn other people's faces, run madly. Now I become myself. The journey is difficult. This is not an easy journey. Time, it's taken time, many years and places. I've been dissolved and shaken. I've worn other people's, I've tried on other people's way of living and tried on their faces. But it's also a journey with bright spots and joys, receiving from God the gift that he intended for you from the beginning. So check this um, few lines out from Derek Walcott and his poem, Love After Love. This is what he writes. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome. It's a really beautiful image of this idea of returning to ourselves. That God has a gift to give you. It's the gift of yourself. 
the way he meant for you to be, the beauty that he created in you from the beginning. A time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself, arriving at your own door and in your mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome. This is really a journey back to ourselves, to the beauty, really understanding and accepting that God created beauty within us, that he desires for us to discover, and there's so many forces against us and against you that keep us from discovering the most beautiful parts of ourselves as God intended. And it doesn't happen, unfortunately, all of a sudden. It happens bit by bit by bit. So in the um, intro message for the walk series, I mentioned a line um, from the book To Bless the Space Between Us, the book about Celtic blessings. Um, but this was a line that um, I quoted before um, from that book. To live a conscious life, we need to constantly refine our listening. To live a conscious life, I think that's the way we want to live. I don't want to live an unconscious, unaware life. I want to live a conscious life. And in order to do that, he says, we need to constantly refine our listening, the way in which we're listening. And rediscovering our true selves is a lot more like listening and observing than it is about doing. Listening to our hearts, listening to our emotions, listening to the memories of our early years, Listening to the Holy Spirit whisper, as Randy talked about a few weeks ago. Listening to safe, healthy friends. Listening together as we tear down the walls, as we remove the masks, as we shed um, the armor. And as a community, uh, Everyday Church, we're really committed to refining our listening together. This is not something that most of us do very well naturally, and it's something that we need a lot of support and a lot of help with, and so it's something that we do together, and it happens in lots of different ways. When we just spend quiet time together, when we're all together, that's a part of this. This is just learning to slow down and appreciate quiet and solitude and stillness, allowing God to speak into that stuff to allow us to hear what he might want to say. But we do it through our emotionally healthy relationships classes, through um, everyday groups, through times of, uh, of prayer and worship and studying and learning that we do together. We uh, was chatting with uh, a buddy this morning about counseling, how important counseling is in the journey, having a therapist or a counselor to walk through some difficult experiences in our life together. Um, we do it in things like the workshop, the Enneagram workshop that's going on this Saturday, which I will share more with you guys in a little bit when I'm making announcements. Um, but we're doing this together. This is not, this is not something we do alone. The walk that we're talking about, this is not something that we're on alone. Thank God. We're not alone in this sort of stuff. This is a journey that we take together as friends and um, as a family. So I want to leave you, um, now that I've solved everything for you and really given you a clear idea, really my, my hope is you would, t I guess two things. One, just recognize how much you're loved and how beautiful you are and understand you have people to walk with you towards understanding that love and beauty. And as a church, as a family, as friends, we get to do this together. And so next week when he's talking about decision-making and Saturday we're doing the Enneagram workshop and groups we have meeting at different times, we're just spending time together learning and listening to help one another through the course of the difficulties of our journeys. So um, let me leave you with this, um, uh, this blessing in the um, whatever I've been learning from this book on Celtic blessing. Let me, um, let me leave you with this little blessing here. So may you live a conscious life as you walk this journey. 
May you return to your beginning, seeing in yourself the gift God has given the world. May your doing in life flow from being with God. May you know that you are loved and pleasing to God. May joy come from being God's child, for nothing, nothing can separate you from his love.